right, let's uh, let's. I think once where we stop. Yeah, I think we're up to our call pony. Now our call pony may not. I'd say leave it. Our call pony may not.
is very simple. I must actually see the Mesha who was mentioned, yes? Because the Nevoah is conceivable that we should have a Pasuk within the Nevoah 
which should stand as a sort of a prologue to it, really, in which the Navi should be seen not necessarily as a person who is within the events, but who stands outside them and sees them, and that we should see him in that capacity. In other words, we don't have to see the Navi only as a character, we can see the Navi also as a narrator and as a person who is experiencing the Navi. He doesn't have to be seen within the Navi, he can also be seen as standing outside of it and reciting it. This for the Gata Taylor is impossible. The Gata Taylor, we can always see Mesha only in one capacity. We can always see Mesha as a person who is within the, the events described in the Taylor and who is a character in the Taylor the way of Rome and the way anyone else is. So, and one of the events which may be mentioned in the Taylor is an event of Adam HaShem HaShem which is an event like every other event. But this is to be seen not as a something which stands outside of it. It's not a stage direction. You see, if you have a part at the beginning of the Taylor, a diabolical emotional labor, there will be something which would stand completely outside the body of the Taylor. There will be a preface to the Taylor. There will be a quotation mark, which you would have preceding the Taylor. And this, with the rest of the Taylor, you cannot have. Meshach Rabbeinu doesn't exist within the Taylor. It cannot be described, discussed in the Taylor. It cannot be seen by us as a narrator or as someone who's writing it down, as an author, whatever it may be. He always can only be seen as someone who is within the event. So this is why at the beginning, and as he said, within the event, he can't be in the beginning of that. Uh, so it would have to be seen. You would have to think of Mesha then, if you thought of him at all, simply as a narrator, as a person who is reciting, uh, who is reciting the Torah, and who is, who is telling you what he was told. So this is something, the Ramban says, that you cannot have. And why will, we'll see in a moment, why you, uh, why the Ramban says actually it was impossible. Why really with Gatsun of Vua, we can't see the Novi in a double role. We can see the Novi both qua character and also qua, qua Novi in his capacity as Novi, his capacity as narrator. Whereas with Gatsun Taylor, the Ramban says that uh, this is impossible. Alright, what does he say? He says, He's completely in an impersonal manner. In the third person, right? The person is simply dealing with, with us. And now this in itself, uh, I suppose, might a person might have understood this in various ways. Why the uh, why actually it is all said in a completely impersonal manner in the third person? But uh, I mean, there are Havdlin secular works. I mean, there are works which are actually involve the first person are written in the in the third person, a person writes about himself and writes completely in the, in the third person. But, uh, I mean, you know, I mean, there's some well-known examples of autobiographical works, Caesar's Wars, or Henry Adams, and so on. But, I must say, this is not, uh, the is something completely different. It's not a question of just writing about personal events in a personal manner in the third person, which would be, which was, with regard to some secular works, simply a matter of choice. Here, I must say, it's a matter of necessity, that it had to be done this way, it had to be written only in the uh, only in the third person. And why he explains later on. Now he says, yeah, completely an impersonal man. This is someone else simply were were discussing him. You don't even you don't see actually that he himself is being discussed. It's a reflection anyway of uh, of his own experience. What is it we should tell us? Sefer Dram. Sefer Dram seems to be already a... Yeah, correct. Alright. 
Yeah, in other words, in Mishnah when he speaks the first person, it's not the first person of the narrator. It's not that first person. It's not the narration I of the outsider who is narrating the event. It's the I, the first person of the uh, of the character who is speaking within the piece. Now, this you would say Vayema Pare, and you can quote Pare too. So he quotes the Vayema Meishe. In other words, again, even though he speaks there in the first person, this first person already is at a different level from the first person of the narrator. The narrator in the first person would be simply someone who is standing completely outside the events and just narrating them, or someone who might be reflecting or referring back to his past, narrating the events in the past. So this is not the narrative eye, it's the dramatic eye. In other words, the eye of a person who is involved within the events, just that Mesha exists even within the Tana itself in two capacities. Even his own his own dramatic function, in other words, even his function within the events is also double. First of all, that he is a person who within the Tana itself is a narrator, right? But not the narrator as the general narrative of the whole thing, but the narrator within the the piece. I mean, just Lahavdal, for instance, let's say in the let's take Fact of a marshal, say in the Canterbury Tales, for instance, or see Chaucer is the poet generally, right? Man narrates everything. Then he inserts for himself a particular tale within the structure of the Canterbury Tales, which he himself is reciting. But there, when he's reciting it, so he recites not as the in his capacity as author, but in his capacity as character, based the way the way the plowman or anyone else might might tell a tale. And there, he could very well tell a tale about himself and speak in the first person. But it's not the first person of the of the authors, where he might speak uh, personally, standing outside the action, but it's the first person of himself as one of the tunnels, one of the characters. So, similarly, with regard to Meshach Rabbeinu, he says that when he speaks in the first person of Sefer Tzvavim, it's not about himself as the narrator, someone who stands outside. It's rather about himself and his own experiences and what he has said as a character within the, the cast, so to speak, that you have within the and the Ahmad says, how do you know this? Because in the beginning of the Sefer, the Eilat Dvarim, which Diva Meisha called Yisrael, the Ahmad emphasizes this in his Akedomah to Sefer Dvarim also. So this is a one long quotation mark for the whole Sefer. Ahmad says, all of Sefer Dvarim, the Ahmad in his Pirush on Dvarim is very careful to point out the continuity of this, of Meisha's Teichacher, the way it goes from the beginning to Eilat Dvarim all the way down. And uh, so the whole thing is encased, so to speak, in one large quotation mark. Yeah? This is a question which uh, in itself has, uh, deserves independent consideration. The question in general as to what the character of Mishnah Taylor is, of Sefer Dvarim. Whether in any sense, I mean, this is Mesh, it is recited in the first person. So does it in any way, with regard to anything at all, does it have a different character from the other Svarim of the For instance, we have a Sefer Dvarim, that says that you don't ask a smuchim mukharat in a kula, but in Sefer Dvarim you do. Apparently for one thing he considers it to be to be somehow different. Or for instance, Chazal in certain places do speak as some are Sefer Dvarim in certain respects different. The Gemara says, you know, Babaska, with regard to the Klolis, you have a Techoche, you have a Mechukai, so it's by Yikra, right? Then you have a Techoche in Dvarim and Kisavet. The Gemara says that you see that Mesha's Techoche, when Mesha said Techoche, it was much more severe than when the Rabbein Shalom gave. The Rabbein Shalom gave Techoche, so it was. Uh, uh, it was only 49 clawless, fewer ICS, and when Mesha came around, it was more ICS, and more, and, and double. 
So apparently from the Gemara there would appear that uh, somehow the Sefer Dvarim is in a sense the Gemara calls Afarim Piyatz may reflection somehow of Meshi himself in a sense in which the other Sefarim are not. Yeah, what, yeah, what the Gemara means there is though that in Sefer Dvarim when Meshi is quoting Moshe the Teichacha that he had said or the Teichacha which had been said as it was given to him in distinction in contradistinction from that which had been given directly from the Shlomo the Chukaisa is spoken in the first place, Chukaisa Teleichum, Chukaisa Timasu. They were spoken directly, so apparently there's that Teichacha which is given through a human instrument, through a human medium, that this is of a, high, of a greater degree somehow, it shows less, it's less uh, suffused with Rachmim than a Teichacha which has been given in, in, uh, in Chukaisa, which has been spoken directly by the Rabbanish lawyer. But, uh, but this is only with regard to the, the manner and of its development and of its transmission. In other words, this is the way the Rebbeinu gave the Torah. And Sefer Dvarim was, was given somehow through Meishas Dibur, through Meishas Dibur. But as far as Ramban's point is concerned, this is not a fact. I mean, the thing is, remains anyways. Uh, but now the Ramban wants to explain to you why this is so. Why this impersonal? Ramban takes it. It wasn't just a literary. Uh, technique, or not just some sort of historical um, element. As, I mean, not as I mentioned earlier. I mean, there are works of that type. You know, Caesar, Henry Adams, Kennedy's. I mean, well-known works. But I must say here, it wasn't just a question of choice. It was a question of necessity. It had to be done this way. Fatam, what? We just read it, you can't. Muni be a maid, you pass it in Shmuel. Just read it, she shall pass it. What? Kadem is something else, what? But it's more. Kadem also needs to come before. Wasn't it who Kadem and who Makadem? Is there any difference? What? Yeah, one is more to anticipate. Kadem means simply to. Unconscious, I mean, it doesn't involve a conscious act of trying to go before, simply being present before. I mean, this uh, this came before this, is the Kodam. But Lakadem means something else, I mean, to anticipate, to try to go ahead of. You can't really be amazed, it means they go ahead of me before. The Master of the Hoyal Lakadem, the Club of Makhlis, Shema, what could he have done? Certainly, this happened, he should have anticipated, he should have come before with Raim and Makhlis. But here, the Shekodma, not Kizim, the Shekodma. What does Raman say? Because since Kodmo tells Kodmo to bring Salem, so yeah. Wait, what is Michal? I mean, the tales Kodmol B'Ghaz Salem? This is not Ramban's own idea. The, if you have Shavuot's edition, no, it gives you re- references. The Gemara, the tale was Kodmol B'Ghaz Salem. What does it mean, Kodmol B'Ghaz Salem? The Gemara says in one place, the Kodmol B'Ghaz Salem, Tatka Deiras. I mean, 974 Deiras. What does it mean, Kodmol B'Ghaz Salem? I mean, can anything be Kedem B'Ghaz Salem? What does it mean, something was Kedem B'Ghaz Salem? What does that mean? What is it? You mean it came before it in time? Is that what it means? And what? You mean it came before it in time? It came at an earlier time? 
is that conceivable that something that there should be a, an event which in time should come before Bria Salem? Is this conceivable? Possible. You think it is possible? What? I mean, I can't explain, but it's possible. Yes, Frank, what do you think? I used Torah as a basis for Bria Salem. I think Torah was like blueprint. Yeah, correct, correct. Right, but, uh, correct, I'll come to this in a minute. But what, what, what does it mean, the cloud? I mean, Kodmo Lidre Salem, what does it mean? Can anything be Kodmo Lidre Salem? I mean, is it possible for an event in time to exist before before <coughs> What? But whatever I'm not understand of Bria Sale, I mean, why? Yes, yeah, it doesn't mean an, an event. I mean, why not? Why can't there be a? Why can't anything be created in time to Bria Sale? Of course, because there is no time before Bria Salem. I mean, time always means what? What is a... What? What do you mean to something else? No, I mean, time is always related to what? I mean, what? To change, to movement, of course. And without, uh, without change, without motion, there is no time. So before Bria Salem, if there was no Elam, there couldn't be any, any time. There can't be any time. Well, this is why Chazal say that... Uh, you know, the look in the post, there's only nine Mahamavas. It only says nine times Vayema. The Gemara says in the Gila that what, uh, the asks a question, there's only nine times Vayema. So the Gemara says, Bereshis Nami Maimahu. The word Bereshis itself is a Maimah, also like Vayema. So what does this mean, Bereshis Nami Maimahu? This is what the Gemara means. I think, if I'm mistaken, I think Ram Meranvuchim points this out. Bereshis Nami Maimahu means that this itself, that there should be breishis, the creation of time, this itself is a briya. Create time itself was a, uh, was a briya. Breishis nami maimu, because prior to briya Salem, there could be, there, there was no time, there couldn't be any time, so you needed a briya, so to speak, of, of time. Breishis nami Yeah, what this means, of course, it should be understood. What does it mean that you created time? I mean, uh, if time itself only is to be seen in relation to change. Of course, if we should think of time as something absolute, the way you know, Newton, for instance, thought of it, uh, then it's much easier to think of it as a separate bria. I mean, it's something which somehow is created. In other words, as you have a certain current, so to speak, just flowing, certain uh, change, just flowing down. It's, you know, it's a popular conception of time, that time just moves on, and you happen to hit it at a particular point, the way a river moves. I mean, the river starts at a particular point, then it flows. Where you enter the river, you enter at this point or at that point. That's, you know, that's the way we normally think of time, starting some time back and just continually moving. And just we happen to enter it at a particular point. But if you think of it in that sense, then of course thinking of it in terms of Bria, something created, is much more readily understandable. Of course, if you're thinking more in terms of relative time, uh, think more or less along Einstein's lines, so time really is a separate entity doesn't exist. It's just, uh, it's not something which, uh, there is a certain thing called time which moves, or we talk popularly, I mean, time moves and time flows, and, and uh, yeah, time flies. I, that somehow there's, there's time which is continually moving uh, and, and changing from one minute to the next. I mean, to Einstein, this, this whole conception doesn't make any sense. I mean, to him, time is just a relation between various events. In other words, it's just, if you have two events, so you can speak of time as one coming before the other. It's only a relation between two things. It's just as, for instance, you cannot speak of if you have, uh, well, let's say, taken space. All right, it's, it's, there it's a little bit easier. We don't think as much in absolute space. I mean, 
we just have two objects in relation to one another, so we don't say one is closer, one is further, one is nearer, one is uh, or, or one is first, one is second. Uh, we just say that they stand in a certain relation to each other. There is a certain distance between them, and that the fact that the two objects and bearing a certain relation to each other, this is what we think of as space. So the space itself, even of one object, the space is where the object lies. So similarly with regard to time, I mean, you shouldn't think of somehow a long chain or a long river and then one object here earlier in the chain and one of later. It's just a relation between various objects. Of course, if that's the case, then the conception of Breshi as a separate memory, as a separate time, as a separate creation becomes uh, a little more difficult. Then you have to think, that, think of it more in terms that this itself, the, that the world should be one within which this element of change should be the prevalent one, and consequently the element of time, uh, this itself was a certain Bria. I mean, this, that the world should have this quality, should bear this aspect. But in any event, to think of time before Bria Salem is impossible. That's what Ram says, that uh, this is only possible to think of time as being in any sense eternal, Ram said this is to say that there was time before Bria Salem. Because the only way you can think of that is only if you say that there was always a world. So he says, according to Aristotle, who believed in the eternity of the universe, so then uh, to think of time as being eternal makes sense. But uh, we believe in Chidu Shailam, creation of the world, so we can never think of anything as preceding the world in time. You should make a mistake. I mean, we speak of the Rebbein Shailam as being a Kadmain or a Rishay. This has nothing to do with with time, because uh, the Metsius, the existence of the Venshleilam is not a, a, an infinite one. It's not one which stretches out infinitely across time. It's a timeless one. In other words, it's one which is independent and above time. Time is always a function of change, of flux. The Venshleilam's Metsius is one which is above time and above change. So, it's not a universal one. It's not an infinite one in time. It's not, in other words, which is somehow conditioned and subject to time, but infinite time, but it just stretches it's of a different quality completely, one which is completely independent of time. So we should think of it completely and independently of that. So it doesn't mean that it existed, the tale existed prior to Bria Salem in time, because prior to Bria Salem there was no time. So what does it mean, rather? Yes, all right, so you mentioned before, yes, what does Aman mean when he says Kodmo Bria Salem? Yeah, in other words, that it's not that the tale, it's was not something which was willed, so to speak, upon the creation of the world with, with Bria, but on the contrary, it's something which precedes Bria Seila. In other words, precedes it not in a chronological and temporal sense, but precedes it more or less in a, uh, in a logical sense. It serves as a basis of Bria Seila. But Chazal says, looked, so to speak, in the Teireh, and uh, created the world. In other words, the, the, the Teireh is some sort of pattern for the creation of the world and for the manner in which the world is to be run, in which also to a certain extent human history is to develop, and, uh, and so on. And this is what the... You know, this is what it means. What this involves a certain uh, important point that Amman touches on uh, elsewhere also. I mean, what, what underlies this conception? I mean, this notion that somehow the Terra was Kedim of Elam as and served as sort of a blueprint for the creation of the world. I mean, what does this, what underlies this notion? I mean, that there was some sort of blueprint, some sort of pattern. Right, it doesn't mean that it came before it in time, right? I mean, I said before, it doesn't mean that, see, when we think of a blueprint or a pattern, so we think in a temporal sequence. In other words, an architect sits down, 
he has a certain conception of what he wants to do. He draws up a blueprint, and then he makes specifications, and uh, then you build a building in accordance with the blueprint. So this is a certain temporal sequence. First comes the blueprint, and then comes this, right? But here, this is not the case. I mean, you can't speak of... It's not the first of Benishloi that made the Taylor as a blueprint. And then he went ahead and he made the world on the basis of the Taylor. I mean, Yistakal Bereisa Baralma doesn't mean it. It's not first you made a Taylor, and then you made this. So what does it mean? It means only Kodmo I mean, what, what does it mean then? If you say Kodmo Yes. Yes, correct. It means something which is co-eternal with the Rebbeinu Right? What? It means co-eternal with the Rebbeinu Shalom. It was made by him. But I'll explain later what I mean. Uh, because if it's Kodmo Lebriya Shalom, so it means it, it's Kodmo. It's Kodmo period. It's Kodmo period. So, in other words, it's, so it's not, it's not that there was some prior step. You see, that the Rebbeinu Shalom somehow made the Taylor and then made the world on the basis of the Taylor. It means that the Taylor somehow is, as he said, it's the Nitzchivis of the Taylor is somehow the same quality as that, uh, as that of the Rebbe So, So what does this mean? Or to put it differently, put it differently, it means that, uh, that the Bria Sa'ilam, I mean, this is what actually Chazal said, he's talking about Reisabar Alma, that Bria Sa'ilam, which, which took place on the basis of the Taylor, is something which almost of necessity had to be made in this way. This was because the the Teire is embedded somehow within the Tzayin Shlakarish Baruch and the world was then created on the basis of this. What underlies this is simply the following. Let me just give a little little akdamim so you understand perhaps more clearly what I mean. There is an early uh, one of Plato's early dialogues in Euthyphro, the title of it, uh, in which he begins first with an attempt to define uh, piety or well, the Greek word is hasiotes, which probably we would translate perhaps today rather as religion, uh, an attempt to define, uh, to define religion. It's uh, one of the, Plato's early dialogues for the most part are concerned with defining, uh, usually on a minor scale, in comparison to later dialogues, and defining certain qualities or certain characteristics. So uh, this was the service of defining religion. In the course of the discussion, uh, a question is raised, a very intricate sort of discussion, but the question is raised as to whether something is pious, or in other words, to put it in our terms, has certain religious value because it is pleasing to God, or whether it is pleasing to God because it is pious. You follow the question? Yeah. All right, the question is raised as to whether something is pious because it is pleasing, I'll just repeat the question, I won't add much at this point. Whether it is pious because it is pleasing to, to God, or whether it is pleasing to God because it is pious. What does this question mean? It means anything to you. It means something, I'll tell you this. It means a great deal of fact. What is the question? What is the question? Cooper, what, how do you understand this question? What do you think what do you think is the problem? Yes. Yeah, so what does what does it mean? What does it mean? Which came first? What, uh,
What do you mean there? Where? Where was it? Where? You said Paddy was there. Where was it? Where? In other words, let us uh, take a specific action, let's say, a specific act. The question is raised was this, let us say, an act which is, let us say, recognized as being, as having religious significance, religious merit. So now, what is the question with regard to this act? Whether the merit derives from what? Whether the merit derives from its. Yes, in other the question is, is there is the merit of the act more or less intrinsic and inherent, and therefore, because the act is inherently good, therefore it's desired by the Ben Shlaila. Ben Shlaila wants you to do this because this is good. This is something good, and therefore he wants you to do it. And there, or, therefore he finds it pleasing, let us say. Or... Is it the other way around? Is it that an act derives merit from the fact that it is pleasing to the Benishla? Why is pleasing? It's another question. It doesn't go into that. In other words, is there actually... Should we assume that an act is meritorious, or is valuable, or is good? And it, it's not only a question of goodness. See, admit it, this applies to other areas too. But leave it for the moment here. That something is good because... It is uh, pleasing to the Ben Shlele. That's why it's good. In other words, the act in itself, if you could somehow abstract this for a moment from uh, the way in which it's accepted by the Ben Shlele, the act in itself has no character. I mean, all actions are neutral. The only merit that any act has, or the only superiority of one act over another, or the only superiority of one truth to another, is only for the fact that uh, it pleases the Ben Shlele, that, uh, that it's desired by him. Or perhaps no. Perhaps and why it's desired by him is a, is a separate question. I mean, there's no reason just it's desired by him and finished. Or no. Perhaps something is desired by him because it's good. So the logical sequence should be that the priority co- is given to the the inherent character of the of the act or of the truth. And then because the act has this character, therefore. It is intrinsically desirable, and that which is intrinsically desirable is desired by by the bench. Right, this is the question which is raised. Now, this is yes. Well, all right. I'll just hold the hold the question base. I'll, I'll touch it. Now, actually, this is a question which is raised within the context of the youth of Fro. It's a question which is raised about action. In other words, about religion, really. But uh, what is involved is a question not only about religion, about certain acts, what is involved also? There's another question involved here. Not only a question about actions, about religious acts, but there's a second question which is inevitably tied up with this one. Yes? It has to be, if you want to say something has merit on its own, Yes, correct, correct, yes, yes, right. Yes, correct, but I'm not, I'm not coming to that yet, but what, what other question is involved in, in this one? And what is simply whether we assume that there is a certain intrinsic goodness in certain actions or not? If from one point of view, all actions themselves are neutral, and it's only from the fact that certain actions are known to be desired by the Rebbe that they acquire any sort of character. 
But intrinsically, if you just judge the act itself, I mean, it's helping an old lady and murdering her are hainuach. I mean, in terms of the the act considered itself. But it's only that the Vaishwai wants that you should help old ladies, and he doesn't want you should murder them. That's why that these actions are distinguished. But there's no inherent, no intrinsic character to the act. So, or, or not, or perhaps the act itself has a certain inherent character. There is something about helping old ladies which makes it makes the Bishlam want it, and uh, something about uh, murdering them which makes him uh, not want it. So this is a question about actions, but there is inevitably there is a qu- second question related to this about one's fundamental conception in general of of the Bishlam. Okay, what? Yes. No, I don't want. I didn't discuss mitzvahs because mitzvahs already introduces another problem. But yes, yeah, so yeah, it's correct. Yeah, I just. Well, let's not get involved in whether it's different from ours, but uh, well, so even it is different from ours. It doesn't relate to this question, but. In other words, assuming that there is a certain reason, though, right? I mean, that's the point. In other words, the question turns as to whether or not I assume that there is a certain reason operating at all within, within the bench plan, correct? Yeah, in other words, the question turns, you see, the question is, I raised it earlier was with regard to the actions. But inevitably related to this is the second question as to why actions are desired by the bench plan, right? I, the question as I framed it before was why a certain action is good. Rather because of its intrinsic character, but rather because it's desirable to bench plan. But the question could also be placed at a different, at a different level, a different perspective. Why something is desirable to bench plan? If you assume that there are actions inherently and intrinsically have no character, then uh, what you actually are assuming is that... Uh, so then you say why fault? Is there a difference between one act and another? Because the Bhishan desires this and doesn't desire that. But then if you ask, and why does he desire this and not desire that, you have no answer. Because the actions in themselves you have already postulated to be completely neutral. So the only reason one thing is preferred to another is just Azaidas, uh, that's all. The Bhishan wants it that way and finished. And it's just a pure arbitrary decision. It's a purely arbitrary thing in his part. He wants this, he doesn't want that. Why? I mean, there is no reason. But uh, that's all. Uh, this is just the, the way he wanted it. It pleased him this way, and that's it. If you assume, however, that actions have intrinsic goodness, uh, then, of course, you are free to assume that something was desired by the Rabbani Shleilam precisely because it is good. Because the Rabbani Shleilam doesn't just decide arbitrarily, do this and don't do this, I want this, I don't want this. <coughs> the decision itself is based on, on certain, as he says, on certain standards. Uh, that which is good, he wants. That which is no, he doesn't want. Just as, let us say, uh, well, assume at least an absolute conception of art. I mean, uh, a, a person desires a, uh, a connoisseur, prefers a good painting over a poor one. Not just arbitrarily, but because he has certain artistic standards, and this meets them, and this doesn't. So, Similarly, with regard to why such a course and not such a course, why this and not this, because this intrinsically has a certain goodness about it, it's in accordance with certain moral and rational standards, and this is why it's desired. So, 
what's involved then is a more fundamental question about, not only about the nature of actions, goodness, but also in a sense what one's conception of the nature of the vanishful element is. And as, as he said, the, I mean, as goodness said quite correctly, in other words, the question is really, do I assume that there are any sort of absolutes, any sort of moral absolutes or rational absolutes which can be said in any sense somehow to, to govern, so to speak, the Benishlam. I mean, somehow the, what, the, what the Benishlam wants is something which must conform or does conform somehow to certain standards, to certain reasons, to certain standards of goodness, certain moral standards, certain standards of truth. In other words, can I assume that there are any sort of universal absolutes, any sort of standards which somehow govern, so to speak, the Benishlam's will, or do I assume that no, it's something which is completely capricious, completely arbitrary, uh, because there are no absolutes. I mean, there are no standards within the world, or within either within the phenomenal world or within the transcendental world. There are no such things. There are no universal ideas, or universal standards, or moral absolutes, or absolute truths. Everything is just a matter of whim and caprice and arbitrariness. Of course, I mean, arbitrariness prior to the creation of the world. I mean, now, of course, some things are from this point of view already, you know, are made relatively absolute. In other words, within our world, they are absolute. But I'm raising, but the question that, uh, uh, that I'm asking is a more basic one, simply at the level of, uh, at the Benchelm's level, whether we can speak of anything as being, in any sense, absolute and therefore limiting in a, in a certain sense. Yes, what? Well, the question is a good one, and of course, historically, <laughs> historically, I'm not speaking now of uh, of our of our tradition. It comes in a moment. I mean, we hope, but uh, historically, there have always been two two schools actually I mean, with regard to this this question, this conception of the. Um, of the Vaishwam. And those who have uh, argued for a, known as the voluntarist point of view, in other words, the point of view that Vaishwam should be seen essentially as being governed by, by will, by what he wants, because you cannot think of any limitations upon it, have always held this up as one argument. Uh, we cannot think of any sort of limitation on, on the Vaishwam. I mean, how can there be any sort of limitation, any sort of restriction? I mean, how can you say that Vaishwam can only want certain things and those things which are good and not other things which are uh, which are not good. I mean, uh, how is this possible? Bishop can, whatever he wants, he can want. You can't limit him in any way. Uh, and this always, you see, this sort of conception has always been associated with those who somehow have, in their own experience, in terms of their own religious experience, have been primarily impressed or overwhelmed by the sense of uh, Rebbein Shlenem's uh, power rather than his goodness or his rationality. In other words, who thought of Rebbein Shlenem as primarily in terms of might, who have been more impressed by a sense of fear, for instance, uh, precisely because the more uh, the more you think in terms of power, you are going to think in terms of that which is limitless, which is boundless, which is arbitrary and capricious. I mean, the more arbitrary, the more powerful. It's a great reflection of power. But, on the other hand, those who've thought more and along what sometimes described as a rationalist uh, position, I mean, rationalists within this area, uh, their argument has been that these limitations are not really limitations, because whenever we think of someone as being limited, 
we think of him as being limited externally. In other words, you don't think of yourself as being limited by your own will or by your own intelligence. You think of a limitation as something which is imposed from without. And if we think of these uh, standards, these absolutes, as existing, we of course think of them as existing within, so to speak, the Mitzis of the Ben Shalem himself. I mean, this is not something which is imposed on him from without, that someone prevents him from wanting this. I mean, this is his own existence, which is an existence of truth and goodness, and one which is, has to be identified with truth and goodness. Uh, this it's conditions his will uh, through intrinsic necessity. So this is not, in any sense, a limitation. The fact that the Ben Yishlelem cannot think wrong or cannot uh, make a mistake is not a limitation because you say, well, the Ben is only must think in terms of truth, in terms of goodness, because goodness and truth are part of his very essence and his very being. But it's not a limitation. Limitation is something which is external. And the fact that the Ben doesn't have the freedom to do wrong or the freedom to, to err is not a limitation because this is the very essence an essential condition, so to speak, uh, of his own existence. Well, actually, what, what would you say? I mean, what do you think is our position? But of course, there is something to be said, I mean, uh, for both elements. On the one hand, the argument which he advances, that somehow the thought of Hashem in some ways is limited, many people have found quite repugnant, the sense that somehow he's conditioned, that he must somehow desire certain actions, he must want you to do certain things. Uh... Uh, on the other hand, the notion that uh, somehow uh, that all actions are neutral, that nothing, uh, uh, you know, that you cannot choose to one action or another, I mean, there's nothing good and bad, but thinking makes it so, as Hamlet put it, uh, uh, this is a notion which, morally, I think, we also find rather repugnant. Or it's not only a moral question, for instance, I'll give you one example. Uh, during the 17th century, for instance, this question was very widely uh, discussed. And not only in the 17th century, we had a long uh, medieval times also was in discussion very much. Uh, and the question then was discussed not necessarily within the moral realm, but within the uh, the rational, the realm of uh, simply of, of reason generally. For instance, uh, uh, Descartes argued uh, that uh, even in this, notwithstanding the fact that Descartes was, was an outstanding mathematician, the person who developed analytic geometry. But uh, Descartes argues that mathematics has no absolute validity. I mean, you know, usually when you think of absolute truth, I mean, you immediately run to mathematics. I mean, there's something which is absolute. Descartes argues that mathematics had no absolute validity. I mean, he said within our world, as we know it, the way it's been constructed, so mathematics is certain. I mean, within our world, it's certain. But uh, there is no absolute validity to it. So, for instance, he said that had the Benjamin wanted he could have created the world in such a way that 2 plus 2, or 2 times 2, should be equal to 6. And when I say 6, I don't mean just, you know, that we would use the word 6. I mean that it would be equal to what we understand, really, by 6. I mean, it would be equal to this. Or, for instance, he could have created the world in such a way that um, a regular polygon, let us say, the sum of the angles, should not be equal to n minus 2 straight angles. I mean, it might have been equal to n straight angles, uh, anything just to any arbitrary number. Uh, I mean, that there is nothing inherent in the structure of the universe which had to be developed along these lines. It could just as well have been done any other way. And for that matter, the card said, the Benisham, any time he wants, can just come and change, uh, change the whole thing. I mean, there's nothing to 
assure you that tomorrow the structure of the universe will be altered in such a way that, uh, uh, that some of the angles of regular polygon won't be equal to n straight angles. I, uh, well, it's impossible. I mean, the, the we understand it. I mean, how is the thing ever closed? But uh, gosh, the, uh, that's the way uh, that it will be conceivable that the thing should be done uh, in this way. Because, and the card argues precisely from this position. I mean, he said that uh, whatever the Bereshom wants, I mean, this is true. There is no truth outside of what happens to be desired. And uh, this is something which is subject to change. If, uh, it could be one way, it could be another way. And, uh, it's finished. But there was nothing inherent about the about mathematical truths which somehow made it necessary that the world be constructed along those particular lines, and there is nothing inherent, and again, to take a temporary of the card, a man who otherwise was uh, swords ends with him, I mean, Hobbes says the same thing is true of morality. There is nothing morally which can be said to have any sort of inherent validity. Everything is purely a matter of whim and caprice, and just the happened to want it this way, and, and that's it. I mean, but there's nothing inherent about it. And now what what do you think is, what would you take to be our, uh, our point of view? I mean, what are your own uh, feelings? Yeah, yeah. Well, as I said yes. But forgetting about this member, I mean, the, the supposing, get outside of this. Yes? I don't know, I was giving the impre- impression that Torah is supposed to be something that's the ideal state, makes you better from the grave, I and mean, it, it's, ma- it's the highest plateau that one can arrive at, can arrive at in civilization. So I don't know, that could be because it pleases God, that has to be because the actions himself inherently are something special. Well, you're already placing us within a social framework, but yes, yeah, Well, I mean, that's not happening. You have a show of Shem there are certain qualities that are Shem yeah, well, that in itself, but that in itself does not necessarily indicate, I mean, the particular, the standard as such. I mean, this can be a matter, the Meshach told him that he's revealing himself to Meshach Abenu in this way, and uh, because, again, this is the way he wants to be revealed. I mean, not necessarily that it must be somewhere along these lines, yes. I don't think that's inherently, uh, because God wanted that it didn't have to be also inherently, but so well, what would you say, for instance, on the basis of Chumash? I mean, what, it doesn't, you take issue with what was said earlier. Yeah. Uh, yeah, as you said, Chumash doesn't have to be for Actually, I'm asking what do you take to be our point of view? Well, what would you say? I mean, well, in the Chumash, do you think there is there any evidence, perhaps, one way or the other? Or any? Yeah? As far as objects, uh, first Hashem created everything, and then by Yarrow he controlled. Well, this is a contempt. This is, doesn't necessarily refer to the fact that before they weren't good. I mean, it means then he saw that they were they had been created as such. In other words, before they were just in the so to speak, of the ideal world, and then they were in the in the world of reality. I mean, in other words, it's the idea had come into fruition. But take, for instance, sorry, it'll take Kain one... Hebel. What? Kain and Hebel maybe killed him. So, how did he know that was bad? Because it was Rabbi Nehashem? 
Exactly. All right. Yeah, but you don't know why it was Abinashu. But take, for instance, the Maitre with Sudaim. I mean, the Avram with Sudaim. I mean, does that all incident? Does it suggest anything one way or the other? The whole nature of the dialogue discourse between the Meshlem and Avram. Yes? No, I mean, that could be an act of grace. I mean, that doesn't... Uh, but, he, if he had but he asked a favor, so Meshav gave him a favor. I mean, that doesn't... Uh, that could simply be asking for, ha- for chesed. He could have, but this is the... The Meshav, if this... I mean, he lost his tzaddikim, is, uh, is is responded to I me. Mean, but there's a certain question that's introduced in the course of the... Yeah, Avram raised the question in the course of discussion of Shrek Vitkalavet, Layasa Mishpat. Now, what is, what is the import, really, of that question? What does it suggest? Yes? Well, I, I think you seem to be splitting away. You know that, that there is a standard that you are saying, do go by, because that is your standard. And if I should pay class, pay it to Mishpat, well, you can say, well, uh, since you've made up arbitrarily, then so I should make the last thing. Go by what he said. Yeah, but, uh, but who says the Bereshit has to go by what he said? I mean, that's... See, the implication of the question, Hashem tell us obviously the implication is that there is a certain standard of Mishpat to which the Bereshit can Kaviyachal be held accountable, right? I mean, or, or for the observance of which Kaviyachal, I mean, just Kaviyachal, uh, he can be held responsible. I mean, how is it conceivable, says Avram, that the Benishim is himself the Shevet Kalogat for Yatsa Mishpat. So what's the Chmei from Samarach? So why Yatsa Mishpat? And who says that he has to do Mishpat? So the implication of the question is that there is a certain Mishpat and that the Benishim will be held accountable for adhering to it. Of course, the, if the person were to insist on taking a voluntarist point of view, so he would have to say, well, that the Benishim had a some, that the that what you were holding the Benishim accountable to is not Mishpat in an absolute standard, but simply Mishpat uh, in, in the sense that of a bris. Ah, you promised uh, that you would abide by a certain measure of justice, so do it. Yeah, but first of all, uh, there's no indication that there was such a bris of any point, of any type. And secondly, you were only begging the question by saying that. So the question is, all right, no, and where is there such a standard that says that the Benishim has to keep his promises? Who that? I mean, this notion in itself, the notion that somehow that there is a bris to which the somehow you can demand, you can be tevedra benishleim somehow that he should adhere to it, this in itself suggests a certain a conception of a certain universal absolute, a certain moral standard of truth and justice, uh, in accordance with which we have a right to expect the benishleim will conduct himself. Or, for instance, it's reflected in other areas too. For instance. Uh, uh, well, just to take one example, it's the Gyalach Alamait. You know, the Goyen doesn't say, Bene Berachma of Yerushalayim Mami. The Goyen threw out the Berachma. The Goyen only says, Bene Yerushalayim Mami. Why? Because he says, uh, This is Siyem Mishpatipara. This is the Bashar promise. You can demand that. You can be Tevea for Yerushalayim. You don't have to ask for Rachmim. You have to be Tevea. This is a conception which is inconceivable from, uh, you see, from the voluntarist point of view. And not only this, actually, you see, to go beyond this, I mean, there's. One major problem, which is actually related to this, the whole, uh, I mean, the problem of evil generally, I mean, the 
old problem, which I'll speak of is Tzadik Varaloi, Rosh Hashanah which of course recurs a number of times in Tanakh, and particularly, of course, where yes, in Eiv. I mean, the Eiv revolves around this question. Uh, all of uh, all of this obviously revolves around one assumption. The assumption is that somehow there should be some reason why tzaddik should be v'tayvloi. I mean, that there should not be tzaddik v'raloi. And if the, the, this is only valid if you assume that there is some sort of uh, standard of justice, that there should be a certain relation between an action and its reward. I mean, zutayvloi is zuzchara. Somehow there's got to be correlation. But if you assume that everything is just purely arbitrary and capricious, uh, so then all right, the tzaddik v'raloi is not too bad. But uh, who says that uh, who says that it has to be otherwise? Who states that the tzaddik must get good and the rasha uh, evil? Uh, perhaps it can be the other way around. And what you see actually in Tanakh when the question is raised, it is raised almost with a sense of tzviyah. The pasuk in Yomayola, I mean, tzaddik ato Hashem ki otzam to men yach mishpatim adabi reis kolam adach Hashem soleicho shalokol begdi bagim. The Rebbeinu Yomayola speaks as almost being tzviyah and Rebbeinu Shlomo to deep. I mean, mishpatim adabi reis kolam have a tzviyah to you. I know you're right and just and so on, and I'm not questioning, but still there's a tzvir, there's a dintera somehow that I have to conduct with you. I mean, why all the Rishayim succeed? And in Eve also, I mean, this is runs through all of Eve, and, the, and even in the end, the answer that Eve is given is not that the premise is wrong. It's not that the Ben Shalem can do whatever he wants, so therefore you keep quiet even if it is unjust. The answer that he's given is that he cannot fathom the depth of the Rebbein Shalom's justice. is at a level, a transcendental level, which we cannot grasp. But not that somehow, I mean, he's not told, listen, uh, I, I just do whatever I want and no one tells me and I'm not accountable to anything or I just complete caprice uh, on my part. The premise is, is retained, that Tzaddik should be terrible. But, uh, I, but you don't understand. I mean, uh, where were you? I mean, where were you when I founded the world? Did you know then what was going on? Did you understand? You can't understand. It's beyond human comprehension beyond human grasp but the conception we made and this is reflected by the way in certain halachas as well I mean, for instance uh, for instance I mean we are seimach uh, in Krishna. so you're supposed to be seimach kishma demes v'yatsiv so why what's the point why you have to say right away we say it all the time right so why are you seimach kishma demes v'yatsiv yes yeah, Hashem Eloki Memes, yes. Rabbi Yudha says, because Hashem Eloki, the Pasi Nechazka, I think it is, Hashem Eloki Memes, me play, but Rabbi Yudha expresses more sharply, Mnei Shechaisam HaYishra Kadosh Baruch Hu Emes. That the Chaisam, the Rabbi Shleilam, which expresses him somehow, uh, is truth. Which, which means, again, that there is a certain absolute, which is assumed to be, of course, inherent in, and coexistence with the Rabbi Shleilam, but, uh, and therefore, we emphasize this point. As a matter of fact, we emphasize it so much that it's quite conceivable that this is not in order to be mitzvah to Krishna to the bracha shel achrel. You see, it may not be necessary. We could think of this halacha. I mean, simply halacha. You might think of that this is halacha. You should mitzvah the two brachas. Aniyah shem alakechem. Should mitzvah to the bracha of emesliyatim, not to be mafsik between Krishna and the bracha of Gula. But this is not necessarily so. It's quite possible that if a person says Krishna without uh, saying Emes Vyatsiv afterwards. For instance, he, he's saying Krishna at night, or he says Chveja, uh, he's saying Kaidim Zmana, because he was out with a minion, he'll say later, did you say Emes at the end also? In Sidi Rabbanon Goen, 
when he has in, in uh, Musaf the you know, the first Siddur, the first Siddur. When he has in Musaf the you know Musaf we have part of Kishmet because they had at one time, particularly in Byzantine times, sixth or seventh century, so they couldn't say Kishmet in, uh, in Shul because the they were persecuted various ways, so they snuck part of Kishmet into Musaf, into the Kaddish. And Kishami. So at the end we say Aniya Shemalakechem. So Siddha of Amagor and he has Aniya Shemalakechem Emes. In other words, this is simple. When you say Aniya Shemalakechem, you have to say Emes together with it. So uh, again, because this is Chaisamai, Chaisamai Shlakarishibok. That's what the Ramban is very careful later on. Uh, Rashi says at one point in, in Kedeshim, uh, when Rashi speaks, there is Chukaisa Tishmail, Behemdor Vasabiya Kilaim, Sadkhalasisa Kilaim, and Azivaita. So Rashi says that this is what a chukai says. He distinguishes the chukim and mishpatim, and he says mishpatim are those things which have a reason. And chukim he says vam gzeres shal malach shein lahem ta. That's Rashi says. The Ramban comes along immediately, and the Ramban says chas shalom shein lahem ta. It's impossible to say that these are just arbitrary statements, uh, arbitrary desires, will by the Rebbeinu Shlaim. Of course, yesh lahem ta. Avadai says, of course, they have a ta. But with regard to Mishpatim, the time is one which we can grasp, which we can understand. With regard to Chukim, the time is one which is beyond our grasp. But certainly, says Ramban, there is a time. He finally said it was inconceivable to assume that these things had no reason or had no basis. I mean, they're completely arbitrary, yes? Yeah, then he quotes the Gemara. Rashi doesn't mean to say that. Uh, Rashi means also what Ramban says. Rashi just is distinguishing in terms of Elam Tami means Elam Tam is for us. I mean, they are given to us without a time. We don't know what the what the time is, but of course Rashi says that there is a Rashi would also agree there is a time. And actually I'll tell you why this is so. I mean, why we really must assume this. The Ram more or less touches upon this both in the first part of the Yisrael and Melavuchim also. See, what does it mean to say and I'll come back in a way also this question. What does it mean to say that the Bereshah wants something? I mean, that something is pleasing to him, so to speak, because he wants it, because of his will. We speak of this with regard to people, right? We say, I, my will is that such and such should be done. Right? This is my will. In effect, what, what underlies the statement of that sort? There's a certain division underlying it. So I think of myself as one thing, and of my will is something else, right? This is what I am, this is what I want. My will is one thing, and myself is something else. I mean, I'm assuming, of course, that we think of will and, as a conscious uh, agent, and you know, human personality. I mean, it's something that we, that we want. It's, it's an expression of something, it's an instrument which I'm using, so to speak. With regard, so this is true of people. I mean, of people it's true that uh, we think of the will as being a certain instrument. I, mean, I have an arm, I have a will. I mean, this is also something which I have, which is an expression somehow of my total being, but nevertheless it's used as an instrument of mine. And therefore we can speak of, uh, as psychologists always, uh, uh, always did, we can speak of the human will and human intellect and the relation between these two, and which is somehow seen as being supreme, and, and so on, and how one affects the other, etc., etc. Oh, with regard to the Ben Shalem, we cannot speak in this, uh, th- these terms. We don't say there's a Ben Shalem, and then there's the will of the Ben Shalem. The Ben Shalem has expressed his will. I mean, the Ben Shalem's will is 
intrinsically one uh, with himself. I mean, this is part, this is his being. He doesn't have a separate will, what he wants. We say, I want, there is a certain I, and then there is, or I will, there is a certain I, and then there is somehow a certain will which is expressed by the I, which stands somehow independently and can be somehow contemplated. But the Atabashan is a such thing. There is no will which somehow can be contemplated apart from him. I mean, it is part, so to speak, intrinsically of his very existence. So, if that's the case, this is true of what Tzayin is, it's true also of Chachmasay. I mean, there's no, the division between will and intellect that we think of in relation to a normal human being, uh, this sounds which is completely inapplicable with reference to the Benishman. So, what is the, the upshot of that? The upshot of it is that the Tzayin and Chachmasay are inseparably integral. I mean, they're simply one. So, if that's the case, so the will itself is governed, so to speak, by uh, by these standards, by these universal elements of truth and so on, justice, morality, etc., which are part of the very, very essence of the of the Vesh. And this is what Ramban says here when he speaks of Tera as being Kedem Lebriya Sela. This is what it means. This uh, it was expressed earlier, the sense that the Tera is somehow a blueprint for Briya Salem. In other words, that the Briya Salem is not just a, an arbitrary act. It's not that when it came, when the time came, so to speak, uh, or at one point, that somehow the Meshulam uh, decided to make the world, and then he decided, then it pleased him to make it one way or another way, but this is a purely arbitrary manner. But it's called Briya Salem in the sense that it's a certain pattern a certain ideal pattern, which, according to which, the world was and had to be created, and the same is true of the uh, of the mitzvahs and so on. Which, which follow? Yes. Uh, does that mean that everything that will happen in this world is Well, this involves a further question, a question which I'm not going into now, and generally a question of the relation of time uh, and the temporal world, the uh, our which is rooted in time, to the timeless. Existence of the Benishlam and the relation of this to you know the whole problem of freedom. In other words, uh, what this means is it means that there was a certain that the element of freedom was not really present, so to speak, in its creation. Freedom if we think of it now as freedom to do wrong. Uh, what you're asking then is would this then condition you know history generally? I mean this in general this brings us back, you see, to the problem of the relation between freedom and uh, and foreknowledge or freedom and providence. What? Uh, no, we would have to assume it's not only for Bria Salem, but for history generally. But the question how this leaves room for freedom, I mean, this I say, this is where you get back to the general problem of the relation between freedom and, and providence. Yes? According to what you said by Eel, what's this whole question here? You, you can't fasten Hashem's justice, this is that Hashem did. What business is Avraham asking him there? Hashofet Kolaris, what you ask him, Mishpat? You don't know what his Mishpat is. Alright, this is, this is a good question, uh, but Eve also asked the questions, right? Yeah, you told us that Eve. Yeah. Alright, now the question is what the nature of, of the reply that was given to Eve was. I mean, to what extent, really, it's precluded or barred any sort of, uh, any sort of inquiry or any sort of, uh, uh, questioning and so on. Right, it's, it's, it's a good question. I mean, how one is to, um, how is to relate this, and how far one may go in how far one may go in this direction? Not me how far goes How far one may go in trying to probe? You see, the thing is this: one is certainly permitted to to probe 
the drachim of the Rebbein Shlach. I mean, to try to understand it, so you have to probe somehow. And not only permitted, one is, one is obligated to do this, and this is the Chayim Salvava says particularly. On the other hand, one can probe and one should not question, right? So how far, really, can one go? I mean, where is one simply probing and where does one begin to question in the sense of doubting? See, we have two, we use the word question in two senses. We use it in the sense of raising a question where I don't know. That's one type of question. Then there is a question where I, which carries with it a sense of accusation. This is something which I cannot do. So how far can I go? I mean, there have been some who've gone very far. You know the story of Lavisa Medicheva, who reputedly, and the story apparently is authentic, uh, uh, apparently one, one Rosh Hashanah, when you keep out of time, what it was, I mean, he said that uh, he got up and he gave a clap of tish, and he said he wasn't going to say Kaddish until he, he got certain answers. I mean, he said he couldn't say Yisgadal under certain conditions. Uh, somehow, he, he had to have answers as to why the... All right, Mela, this is a but, uh, <laughs> yeah, but uh, Chazal, for instance, say, the Gemara Yumi, the Gemara says, that what was the Gdula of Anshik Nesak Daila? What was the Gdula? The Gdula was that they restored the Atara to its previous glory. What did they do? They, they, they instituted And where did it, why did it need to be restored? Because uh, doubts had been raised about it. That, uh, the Mark quotes this in the Vim. I don't know, I just don't find who, the, who they had been. Who asked, in the, in the light of certain uh, certain events in, in history, they said they couldn't see how one could go on describing the Bishlam as a Kela Godel Hagibel Where's the Naira? So in the Pasion Where's the the also, in the and they said, No, Adrabe, Zuig Vurasso, Shkevish Yitzre, Shneser, Hapayim, Loshoim, Velo Hene Reiso, Shilmole, Merosh, Kalishbor, Ramashal, Iskayim, and Umas. Fragma, Rabon, and Hechi Avdi, Hochi, Vashit, Akantan, Takin, Meshi. How did the Yemio and Daniel, Meshi said, Okay, I got to give a name, I suppose, in the Taira? So, how did they come along and they said that he was not okay, I got to give a name? I mean, how is it conceivable? The Mosses, I'm a Rabalazo, I'm a Teshi, Yazim, Bakarishbor, Shamitihu. They knew that the Beishlam is an emissa, and he wants only truth, and to be worshipped in truth. So they, uh, they they didn't lie. They couldn't bring themselves to lie. So Anshik Nesagadoyla realized that even if Nachin Merakten Beicholoi, Nachin Mishtabni Bebanov, so he's also Kelagon Givanev. But they didn't, uh, but they, they hadn't uh, seen this, so, so they didn't say it. In other words, after they cast, they tied it somehow that with a mention that he's not Naira, that he's not God. I mean, I, I, I'm not. It's, it's a problem which deserves further, I mean, a much broader elucidation as to how far one can go in this direction. There, there are the Gemaras, the Gemara in Brachis, the Gemara says that by Chal Meishi, the Gemara says, Kavayochel, the Beishlim, he grabbed the Meishi, I mean, he grabbed the Beishlim, Kavayochel, by his coat, and uh, he told him, I, uh, he, won't, uh, he won't let him go until he. Promises him a chilo until he explains certain things. Uh, it's not proper for you. 
I just how far one can go in raising these questions. It's, a, it's an important question, right? particularly in relation to the family. For instance, certain people have had varied reaction, let's say, to the, uh, the deputy, which was, uh, you know, which produced now. I mean, one of the, I haven't read it yet, but I've spoken to people who have. Uh, the, the, third, the third act, I think, is entitled, in the printed version, I uh, the third act is entitled, uh, I believe, this is the title, I mean, Auschwitz, or God, where, where are you? I mean, or where were you? I forget, something to this effect. I mean, the question which was raised in many people's minds with regard to the past, um, uh, you know, to, to the, the events in Europe. Right, how far, so some people have felt this is sort of a blasphemous uh, question. And in some people, something depends on who's saying it, you know, in some people it is uh, blasphemous. I mean, it's meant in that way. Uh, the the Gemara Gitan really says it. The Gemara says that um, that that he was uh, he was criticized severely, because he asked, because he said uh, he raised certain questions of the Benishlam as to why have you forsaken us and so on. This mentioned and he, but, but the Gemara must be quoted for us continuously. What do they want from Ba'Koychvah? I mean, David said it. So the Gemara said, depends how you said it. David said it as a as a question, uh, as a lament, and he said it as, a, as an accusation. You see why? I mean, you can ask a question in, in many different ways. But the problem is, I, I say a good... Uh, as a matter of fact, I just heard that someone told me in, uh, uh, when uh, Pesach, I'm, I saw Karnatowski, he said a very... He repeated to me a part of his drasha, and uh, uh, to my mind, I think a very, very good vault. Uh, he said with regard to the Pasuk in... Um, uh, when Meshach Rabbeinu came to the... Meshach Rabbeinu came to Mitzrayim, he came to Knesset Yisrael, so they said... So, well, the first, when he spoke to Ben Shem, so he, so he asked him, he said, but if I'll come, they'll ask me Mashmoy. So, Ben Shem told him that, uh, he told him, okay, I should care. So, he touched very well, very nicely. He said, what's the question, Mashmoy? What, what his name is? All of that, know what the name is? What, uh, what, what was the question? So, he interpreted, he said, this is exactly the question they will ask. The minute, the minute Meshach Rabbeinu will come and will say, you should know, the Meshach, he wants to take you, that uh, he, he wants you should bring home Pesach, he wants you should do this and do that. So, and he has certain demands upon you and he, and he makes certain promises and he'll tell him the whole story, the Meshach is Beit Olam and Meshach Olam and so on. No, so naturally, the first question they will ask will be, Azego, and where was he until now? Meshach, what the... I mean, now he's coming to tell us that's what we're slaving away for 200 years. Now he comes to the Baruch Abba, I mean, to tell us that uh, that there's Gula and to tell us the whole story and there's Teva and Mitzvahs and that he runs the world. Uh, where where has he been all along? How did he let all these events happen? Didn't he see all the children were thrown in the river and some were baked into the into the bricks? I mean, didn't he see all this? And he kept quiet. Where where was he all along? So then, this is the it's a tremendous cash. This is what he was what he was told. That we read it, we write it, we pronounce it out of Dalad Nun Yud. So when it's hidden. This is what he should tell him. That even that even when I'm hidden, even when there are certain periods of Hestapanim, we start in the but still it's even when it's hidden, but still the Bani Shalom is present even though somehow it's present in America. Uh, but anyway, uh, but this is a separate, uh, separate problem. Right? So Amman says that since the tale was Kotmul right, that it was 
except for that it was sort of an archetypal pattern for the world, and both for the structure of the universe and also for the moral quality of the universe and for the course of history and also the character of mitzvahs. So therefore now, when Mesha was, re- was writing it, so how was he writing? So he was writing as something which was not developing. It was something which was preconceived. Because if Mesha was simply writing something which would be recording, an event which is now taking place, an event which is now therefore being created. So he would be involved in its creation, he could write it all in the first person. But Meshe was talking about, but Meshe was writing the Teireh, and the Teireh was Kodmo the Briyat So it was something which had a priori validity, and therefore it was something which, on the contrary, was already a past record that he was setting down. So how could he write it? Uh, this is inconceivable, because the Teireh already was so therefore the act of narration is one in which he couldn't end. So what Raman is saying is therefore that there's a difference between Teirah and Nevoa in this sense. And uh, alright, I mean the subject in general is, uh, is a broad one, but the difference is that Raman says that between Teirah and Nevoa is that this Nevoa is in the first person and Teirah is in the third person. Must be written in the third person. The reason for this is that Raman puts it is because the nature and the character of Nevoa is different from that of Teirah. Teireh is Kodmol B'Rasel, Nevu apparently not. Nevu is something which develops within, within time, and it's a record of the experience of the Navi himself. In other words, what happens in Nevu? What happens in Nevu is that it's something which is created and developed as an event within time. It's something which is seen by the Navi, and the act of his vision, his experience, is one which is a temporal, a purely temporal event. And subsequently, the, uh, what does the Navi do subsequently? He... Uh, he records this, he records uh, this Nevoah. And for that reason, first of all, Nevoah can be written in the first person, secondly, Nevoah is not comprehensive. See, Teirah is Kodmol B'Rasalem, as we see later on, Ramban says, and therefore Teirah is an overall blueprint. I mean, you have a blueprint, an archetype, so it's not just for a part, a part here and a part there, it's not isolated experiences which are here and there. I mean, a blueprint cannot be a patchwork. Nevoah, in a certain sense, lacks this comprehensiveness. Nevoah is there was one Nevoah here, another Nevoah there, and it's not something which was necessity had to develop, or had to be written. Chazal say that if Knesset Yisrael had been Zecher, the only thing they would have received would have been just the Teireh and Sefer Yeshua. That's all. The Sefer Yeshua and the need of Nachlas Aretz. But all the other Sefarim, of Techachim, and all the other Nevim, all this would never have been written. Why? Because it was not something which was served as a blueprint for history, it was something which was called for by history, something which had to develop, which didn't have to develop, but which occasion did develop. And, of course, once it did develop, once it was born in time, I mean, the insights which they got were insights of Pinevue, and which subsequently have validity in Kedusha Lodeiris. But it's not something which was intrinsically necessary. And therefore, it's not something which can be said to fit into necessarily into one overall pattern. It's not something which has to be one general, single Blueprint. I mean, that's why the this halacha does not apply. It's not, there isn't one single all-embracing element which has to be there. And also the personality of the Navi is reflected in the Vua. I don't say it, uh, it records it. Of course, it's not just the element of the personality of the Navi. It's not just something she writes for himself. It's the Vua. But the Vua takes into account what he sees is something which reflects his own personality, which is involved in his nevuah. I mean, that, this is why we can speak of the... We can speak, I mean, validly. I don't mean we can speak the way 
We're masculine to speak. Right? We can speak, I mean, we'll be tailored. We can speak of the style of one Navi in, uh, in relation to the style of another Navi. I mean, there are certain stylistic devices which appear here and don't appear there. And, um, Chazal say that Sigdan Echad Elo Lacham and Nevi'im, but the ancient Nevi'im is Tabim Sigdan Echad, the Gemara Sanhedrin. That there is no single form and no single style which uh, two Nevi'im can express themselves in. Because since every person is, is different in uh, every way, I mean, changing this, the Palsash Fey and Shavim, Kachin Deus Fey and Shavim, there can never be any exact identity of, uh, of personality. So there, and since style is an expression of personality, so there can never be a complete identity of stylish. Even when the message is the same, the message, the content, may be basically the same, but I mean, the, uh, the style has to be different. And we can validly speak of this. In the Taylor, we don't speak this as somehow Mesh's style, and the style is in any way a reflection of Mesh's personality. Not at all. In the Veeam, though it is, in the Veeam, the style is, uh, or the way it's written, the form, reflects the experiences of the Navi, the, his context, his personality, it's reflected somehow in the Nebuah. Exactly how is problematic, but it is somehow embedded, uh, embedded within it. With regard to Taylor, though, uh, this, uh, this doesn't apply. Yeah, just one other question I just want to touch on. Uh, all right, perhaps it's not... Two elements. Uh, sorry, just I'll uh, leave you perhaps with this. Think about it for next time. Uh, Ramania says the tale was Kodma Libriya Sa'ila. Right? And it precedes Libriya Sa'ila. The Gemara one place says Kodma Libriya Sa'ila and Tatkad Shani. And Tatkad Dayas. 974 Dayas. Why? Because uh, in the Pasuk it says Dovar Tsiva Ashikasa Roshali, Dovar Tsiva Lalaf Dayas. Right? The tale should be given Lalaf Dayas. And uh, actually it was given only after 26 Dayas. So where is Elof Deir? Elof Deir. So Rashi says, yeah, does Rashi say? Because if the world didn't have Torah at that time, it's impossible. The world would have been destroyed. It couldn't have got along without the Torah. Yeah. So all right. So what does it mean? So therefore, somehow, so the so the original plan, so to speak, would be that there should be a thousand Deirs to prepare for Torah. And then the world will be right for Taylor. But this somehow was, uh, had to be modified so that it only came after 26 days. So what does this mean? The first mention of one plan, then another plan. No, it doesn't mean this. But it means the following. I'll just give you an analogy. Rashin Chumish uh, quotes, he quotes a similar memory. That, you know, in Chumish, in Parashas, so at one point it says, uh, in the Parash of Bria, Hashem. Another point, it says Hashem Alakim. And later, another Pasha Alakim also. As a matter of fact, uh, this was noticed a long, long time ago. Rabbi Chazal touched on this. And Rabbi Dalevi also in the Kuzari, in the fourth book of the Kuzari, uh, he touches on this particularly. Later on, the, you know, the uh, biblical criticism has made a great deal out of this. They have a whole, a whole deck of cards, I mean, stacked high with this, uh, on the base of this document, the E document, and the J document, Saganso. Uh, uh, the other fact is a Kasuto uh, who was one of the, uh, he lived uh, not long ago now, he, he died a few years ago uh, Professor Kasuto now, Israel, he wrote a, a refutation of, uh, uh, of this point of view of this so called documentary hypothesis and uh, actually he touches he deals with some of the ideas of the, of the Kuzri and for some reason I don't know he, he 
he either he slips his mind, he, you know, he makes his own discovery. But I don't, I don't want to discuss the Kuzis uh, the uh, point of view. You know, as Rashi says, the Machshava, the Chatzchilaga was all on the Baris only with Alakim, with Midas Hadin. But then Rosh and Elam Yachali Sky, it will be impossible for the world to exist. So, Tzirafloi Midas Rash, Hashem Alakim. So, what does it mean there? It means that first Abayashim created the world with Din, and then he changed it to Rachim. I mean, there was no sequence. It, doesn't, it wasn't that the first the world was created with Din, and then it was changed. And Rachman was introduced. I mean, there was no such. Uh, uh, when, when was this period of time when it was only with Dina and then Rachman? Certainly not. So it doesn't mean that it was a temporal change. But it means it's simply that at the ideal plane, if we could conceive of man or the world as existing at the absolute, at the plane of absolute existence, the fully ideal plane, then actually at the plane of the ideal, at the level of the ideal, what, what should be, what should rule? Midasadim, absolute truth and absolute justice with, with full rigor. I mean, there's no rachim in mathematics. I mean, uh, this is it, this is it. So actually, if man could exist at that plane, so there would be nothing but D. There would be nothing but D. Midasadim. But since the Bashan knows that it's impossible because man is weak and fallible and is liable to sin, the chet. So it's impossible to hold man to the strict accounting required by the Midisadin, by absolute truth. It's impossible to do this. So, so therefore, you have to be Mitzarev, Midisarachmi. So in the way the human world is to exist, Midisarachmi must exist in conjunction with it. So what it means is that there is one level of existence, of ideal existence, at which there is nothing but deep. But the real plane of human existence, this is one of which Deen must serve together with Rachman. Now, this is the same notion that Chazal expressed also in with Tatkades. It means, ideally, if somehow man could have developed anthropologically along the ideal lines, so then actually the world would be ripe for Tehra, be ready for Tehra in its fullest sense and in its complete Hekif would be after a thousand days. So it requires somehow a thousand days of natural religion, of natural living, before the world would have reached a stage of fruition at which it would be ready, which Taylor would have, be, would have been called forth somehow naturally. In other words, the full period of gestation would have been complete after a thousand days. But, man being what he is, this is not possible. Just as for instance, Chazal said that the Geula and Mitzrayim had to come when it did because they were already Shakua and Memtes Shari Tumeh if they had waited any longer, so they would have been there, they would have been completely beyond redemption. So similarly, had the world, along the corrupt course that was continuing, had the world been left to its own devices for a thousand years, it would have been beyond redemption, beyond salvation, completely stuck in a spiritual quagmire. So in order that the world should not be lost in this way, in order that man should still be subject to being redeemed, being purified by Tehran, before somehow he disappeared completely beneath the quicksands, so then the Tehran had to be given after 26 days. So what Cheshbin is, this is a Cheshbin that Chazal said, that Kodma therefore the Patcha It's not in the sense that it came in time. There was no time, there were not before Bria Salem. What it means is that it was, the Tehran was given at a point which was not, at which the world was not yet right somehow. The ripeness and its full ripeness would have been Elf Dayan. So it was given too soon, so to speak, 974 days too soon. It was kaidum, so to speak, in that sense.
Alright, okay. Uh, Alright, we'll stop here. Yeah, now the Ramban goes on to discuss another idea, which not all the shade have emphasized with Ramban did. Ramban, this is a cardinal principle here, it touches upon it here and elsewhere as well. Uh, the, the relation, the extent to which all knowledge is directly somehow communicated uh, by the terrorists found uh, in the Tehra. Alright, right, we'll see what Ramban means by this. He refers particularly to scientific knowledge, but he begins with the scientific knowledge, then pro- progresses to moral knowledge, because this is the state of the Bria also. Uh, this idea begins, this governs uh, pretty much the rest of the of the Hakdame, pretty much the rest of it. So go through the Hakdame from here, until, uh, in, in this edition, until Zion, until Va'ato Shirley the last note that he attaches, believe for the moment, but the part until then. And try to understand what Ramban means by this, uh, all knowledge being involved in Tehra, and how this is, and what this business is about Shweisa, Shakarish Bokhu, about all the being involved in the in Tehra and so on. Alright, okay. So in other words, was, was the Torah given to help man, or was man created in order to live according to the Torah? So man was created in order to live Why man was created? I don't know. Man, I don't think it's already given. One of those questions are already given right away. I'm not subject to solution. What? If man was created in order to live by the Torah, then why was he given right away? Why? Then why was he given right away? Because, in fact, he was born at a purely natural level, and uh, why it's one point this dimension, one point this dimension, no gosh. And, and if a man was living uh, a life of Tzedek and Yosher and recognized Hashem, then what would there be any need for Torah? What, what else? What else? The tale goes what? far beyond this. The tale is not merely for... The tale is not merely the, to achieve Tzedek and Yosher. Bring man to develop the full potential of man to give the highest possible level of self. But if, if man would have been developing along these lines. Well, the assumption is that he can't. There is a, there always remains a certain level above the above that which man can attain by purely natural development, a level which, over and above this, a dimension which a therapy provides. But what, what, what level did Abraham attain before... Uh, before Hashem was in Scotland? Well, uh, as all held, that Abraham... Uh, that Abraham had insight in the Torah itself through the natural world and was able to divine a great deal of Seyesh Lachari But what the level of Abraham is in this respect is questionable. How far is How far is There's also another problem, you see. When you confuse two issues, the question of personal merit, which is one thing, in other words, uh, how far, how, uh, what's chusim, so to speak, Abraham would have had, and then the question of what was revealed to him. These are two, two separate, separate problems. You said that. Such a thing as 
true. There is such a thing as justice. Because if you look at the world, for instance, if we could have a total view of the thing, of, of you know, the entire picture as Hashem can, so you'd see that certain things don't fit, for instance, or that, maybe, I mean, it's the only way I can think of that. You, you'd see that, uh, that killing, for instance, just upsets a certain harmony. Yeah, so. But this is not to say that it's intrinsically wrong, rather that it's impractical or that it's. Uh, no. What does it mean? No, I can't no, it's quite not I mean, the act itself. The act itself. What makes its own its own nature is evil. But there are times when when no, it's no, it, no, it, no, like well, killing no, no, is no, no, right? No, no, and no, 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 and no, as no, 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 every action, when I say the act itself, I'm always speaking of the act within a context. I mean, no act is just abstractly divorced from its context. Of course, an act has to be judged within a context. Every every moral judgment is based in a certain context. But I mean, given within this context, I mean, within the context of the stomach, a guy's murdering an old lady for nothing. So then it's not the act, it's what? the act itself. I don't mean the physical act. I mean the, the moral act. The moral act within Can we express it in another way that in terms of a man's function, a man has a function and man is going against this function. This is what you mean. I don't see what intrinsically wrong means. It just seems like. Uh, well, all right. In other words, given for a moral being, it's intrinsically wrong. For a moral being. Naturally, I mean, I don't say that it's intrinsically wrong uh, for a lion. Uh, no, no, I mean, I, I refer to. I mean. What's following from. I, I mean, it's following from the. Fu- only because of the function of man. I'll ask you again. Alright, so where's that? That's some of the best in the day.